Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It's uh, Saturday, November 26th, 10 a.m. I am wearing a Michigan shirt today because uh, the number three undefeated Wolverines are playing their arch rival undefeated number two Ohio State Buckeyes, and it's in Ohio. Michigan won last year. It's going to be a tough game today, but uh, I tweeted out to my friend John Evans, CEO of LAC, who has uh, two sons at Ohio State, you know, best of luck. So here we are with Rodney. He was at the Benchmark Minerals Conference in Los Angeles, which I had FOMO about missing. So he's going to give us a little bit of color on the presentation he gave there or the panel that he was on there. And then he was in London at the one-to-one -one conference where he presented as well. So, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, you know, kind of Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse versus kind of Macquarie on the bullish side. And uh, Rodney published a report on Piedmont recently and uh, Albemarle SQM, Livent and Tesla all had their earnings results. So a lot to cover. And so let's just start, Rodney, with your trip to the one-to-one -one and presentation at the one-to-one -one conference as well as Benchmark. What, what did you say there and who did you meet there? Uh, what was the overall vibe and you know primary takeaways so yeah i mean uh, the benchmark was hosted in la so a long haul for me from mauritius 12 hour time difference but good to catch up with everyone saw a lot of clients in the flesh some we'd already seen you and i you know uh, piedmont we've but i uh, caught up with atlantic and uh, various, you know, people, Tesla, so on, SQM, saying hello to everyone. Uh, in general, obviously, a lot happier uh, and an upbeat vibe relative to when you and I last went to the conference in 2019, when times were a little tougher. So despite all the narrative and possible one-off data points and things throwing people throwing people off and, and causing a couple of bearish results. The reality is when I saw the individuals at uh, a benchmark, and that includes the graphite guys with the anode section, as well as the cathodes, is they are all seeing a lot of approaches and are all you know still engaged for discussions across a number of the parties in the downstream demands. So regardless of what is said, I think, if uh, you know compounded growth of uh, EV sales is to remain, then um, then quite a few companies are running into some potential issues. So they are very, very keen to secure supply. The other thing that was a bit of a standout for me that I've kind of took my eye off, although I was early on it originally and then sort of left it, was Iola Hughes from uh, from Row Motion uh, did a presentation on ESS. Um, and that sector is going gangbusters. If you look at the addition of energy in the last year from uh, Bloomberg's solar, wind and hydro are very high percentages of that on a year-on-year -year basis for last year. And if you look at what ESS is attached to, it is largely attached to those. So ESS, I think, is doubling. It'll continue to go and I think Rome Ocean said, I don't know if it was the equivalent, I stand corrected, of 6 million EV equivalent in 2025, but to be as big as 20% of the EV market by 2025. And as we know, if you go beyond there, if you look at the addressable market, Howard, of ESS, it's a lot, lot bigger. That doesn't mean to say that sodium won't take a piece of that and vanadium, you know, and so on, redox. So 
but I wouldn't underestimate that market. And so that will be an underpin of demand as well for lithium ion batteries for sure. LFP, you know, picking up in that sector, but generally all things, as I said, sodium might, but it's something that people should have a close look at because in the bearish reports, their numbers for ESS are, in my opinion, too low. Benchmark, I sat on a panel to do project financing and my commentary was fairly simple. Junior mining has always and will continue to be largely funded by retail players and then institutions with equity. You don't get debt at early stage exploration. You need equity funding. So bearish reports that send the market down, like we've seen recently, all that does is delay further supply, which we believe is in a structural deficit, and we think wrongly so. So that was, was the key point uh, that I had to make, amongst other things. You know, there was an MD from um, Citigroup with me on the panel, you know, and again, largely the narrative I heard from him is, you know, unhedgeable, isn't enough of a future, et cetera, et cetera. So banks getting involved with typical structured finance like I would have done in my past life, it's very difficult without a liquid futures curve and without the ability to hedge anything you know, for the future, especially with something as specialized as lithium chemicals. Just on that point, Rodney, I think uh, we just did this video with Ben Steinberg as a follow-up to the one with John Miller. I expect the U.S. Department of Energy to provide the, the loans from the loan project office. That's exactly what they're set up to address. The fact that city can't hedge, uh, it's not a mature market. Getting long-term, low-cost funding, you know, I think the first half of next year, you're going to see significant checks written from that loan projects office. Uh, and we know Ioneer, Lithium Americas, and Piedmont have all applied, uh, among others. Which is great, but it only gets to that point once they have produced some kind of a feasibility and offtake and, and, and. So they're quite advanced. You've got to get to that stage. And that's hugely sensitive to share price. Obviously, in Canada, you know, you have flow through financing like you do with Winsome. So you can get a, and Patriot, you can get a phenomenal effective price with that mechanism that they allow for exploration spending only. But it's a hugely helpful thing because... In those instances versus some of the others, I think both Winsome and Patriot raised at nearly double their share price effectively. It's, cra it, it's crazy. The, the, which is, it, which is phenomenal, which is fantastic because it goes, it has to go into the ground, but it is really a, a hugely helpful. So it's good to see the DOE now stepping in in the US because Canada has that mechanism. And then I saw something with Frontier with a critical minerals fund. So each place has to do its own. I guess we'll have to see what's what's happening in Europe. But bearish reports don't help for the smaller juniors that don't have those benefits. Last thing is to say thank you very much to Simon Moores and the Benchmark team. They always host a great event. They're hugely welcoming and put on, you know, it's very conducive to having everyone chatting and, and, and shaking hands and sort of interacting. So thanks again to them. To your point about these negative notes impacting equity prices, you put out a tweet how you differ with Goldman Sachs. And like I said, Macquarie has been following this market for a really long time. They very substantially upgraded their forecasts in the short, medium, and long term for lithium pricing. We'll put up the, the uh, charts from that. I don't have them right in front of me, but they were a very substantial increase and going out 
you know, I put out this tweet much stronger for much longer because now they're forecasting mid double digit thousands, I don't know, 30, 40, 50,000 into the 2027 timeframe. And like I said, they've just been researching this market a lot longer you know, than Goldman has, but Goldman basically put out a note and we're going to put this up here again. They're pushing this like lapidolite supply story coming out of two of their Chinese analysts, I think that uh, are on the ground looking at, you know, they've referenced, you know, four or five different projects in lapidolite. I have no insight into the China lapidolite market, to be frank. I mean, you don't either. We don't have people on the ground in China. Uh, we know it's dirty. We know it's 20 to one, you know, conversion instead of eight to one with spodumene. But, you know, the, the Chinese have been very innovative in the past in nickel, for example, with nickel pig iron, figuring out how to make products out of lower quality material. So everyone was like very dismissive of 2018 when, you know, Morgan Stanley said the big short and, you know, they were right for the wrong reasons. We shouldn't, you know, just reject out of hand that Goldman Sachs is wrong. You know, you, you think they're wrong for a couple of reasons beyond the lapidolite supply issue, but, you know, do you want well, to share? Well, I mean, I, I have lapidolite supply in my model, so it's not materially different from Goldman. Where I understand how she got to those numbers. What I'm saying is where I think it is wrong is aggregate supply and battery grade supply are two separate things. I don't think they are correctly handicapping the percentage of new supply that's going to fall into greenfield projects. I think Canaccord estimated at 40%. I need to go through my numbers, so let's just use those. Um, and then look at how many unconventional flow sheets represent in that 40%. So what I'm saying to you is if it, if you are lucky, it's 12 to 24 months to qualify as a greenfield project into the battery supply chain. So if you've got 40% of 2025 supply is greenfield, I see some hiccups between aggregate lithium supply and battery grade supply as a first flag then the second flag comes in with um, restocking there's a couple of problems the first thing is when cathode orders lithium there is almost a six month window or more between when that order goes in for that lithium and when it reaches an ev so there is you know when you produce when you order something uh, in, 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 in one half of the year, when the lithium is ordered to go into the cathode and then the cathode sends it onto the cell and the cell, the module, and then into the EV, and then the EV has got to be shipped wherever it is, there's a lead lag in that. So in a market that's growing at 30 to 40%, that lead lag difference can be quite big. So I spoke to a couple of recycling specialists as well about production scrappage on cells. And I applied that to this year's cathode production um, and made that adjustment and then made the adjustment for the lead lag on the order and then how many cells were sold. And then what was the installed EV, but then you've also got to make an adjustment for quality controls of cells once they've made it through the production scrappage, but they arrive at, the, at, at wherever they go to, there, there also isn't 100% clearance from that level. And then there were battery cell replacements by some guys that's outside of new orders. There's 
problems with, with older orders that need to be fixed. And if you go through all of that, the restocking number, actual restocking number is much lower than what Goldman's has. And one of their main the central arguments for their thesis is basically restocking is going to drop substantially next year and then literally disappear in 24 and 25. And I don't understand that in that in a growing market, if you want to keep a fixed number of weeks or months of inventory, um, as the market expands, well, you need to keep restocking and, and growing those inventory stockpiles. So I have a different number to Goldman Sachs. I think they're short. And if you make that adjustment on the restocking alone, you're going to remain in deficit next year and it will continue going beyond that. So there's no point in all. I mean, you know, the other thing is $11,000 a ton in 2024. <laughs> no one's cost it. You know, that, that is, it's nonsensical. So I understand the way that you, you got there. I just... I don't agree with the practical realities, and I discussed this a bit with SQM uh, at, at the benchmark and, and a couple of other guys and, and spoke to some of the recyclers or whatever to check my numbers. So I think battery grade supply and aggregate supply are two different things. There's a chart I've got from one to one where I show aggregate supply is actually in oversupply for the next few years, but battery grade is in undersupply. So there's, you know, there's, there's a big difference on that front. And I think, so we remain in a tight market. So could you explain if, uh, if overall aggregate or is an overall aggregate oversupply, but battery grade is in shortage, is there a dichotomy in price between battery grade and non-battery grade or? Well, like, so first of all, there's another thing that, you know, you've got to be careful with is the reprocessing. So if I make something that's non-battery grade in South America and I ship it to China, and somebody reprocesses that material into battery grade. In, in South America, I've registered a production of a ton, and in China, there's a registering of another ton. So you're double counting, that makes mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Because someone says, oh, there's my numbers, but actually what's happened is it's been reprocessed, you know, uh, to to make battery grade so that's one thing a risk is the double counting the other is you can have stockpiles of non-battery grade while you know there isn't enough reprocessing capacity in the market or you can stuff it into another market if it's low iron who knows you can put it into possibly into that specialist market or into the grease market or whatever it is um but battery grade itself, in terms of what's ready to go, that number is lower. And there's a lead lag on that. I would say that there can be inventories that sit in various different places, but that doesn't mean it's oversupply because it, it, it eventually will find you know, where it needs to go. Um, and the other thing, of course, is recycling. Well, recycling is all fine and well, but if it isn't recycled and then reprocessed into battery grade, then what is it? It's just technical or some version of, of non-battery grade. So mm -hmm. there are nuances here that, that you need to tweak. The only thing that will validate their thesis, and this is the thing you've mentioned before about being, being right for the wrong reasons, but if there's massive demand destruction, that could cause, that of course would be a problem. I, I don't see how, I think 
if you look, that's another key takeaway I had. I think it was that benchmark is Neo and all of these guys expand are setting up European sales rooms. So it looks like China is now going to go on the offensive to export EVs to the rest of the world, already to Europe. I presume they'll have a go at the US and they certainly will come my way in Africa. You know, China's big on selling here. I can't see ESG concerns or, you know, battery pack provenance or whatever being that big an issue in Africa as it might be elsewhere. This point on, and one of the points in the Goldman note was that a lot of demand was front loaded, like China, there's subsidies that are expiring um, next year and that demand in China was artificially inflated this year. And next year, it'll, it'll slow. That's their argument. Um, and, and you would, you know, so it does tie in if you saw a problem with cathode demand, if there is going to be a drop off in EV sales, it, the waiting times don't necessarily suggest that to be the case. I mean, they might have narrowed. Um, the other thing, of course, is that we know in other parts of the world that there is waiting times and delays to get an EV. So I don't see why that battery cell production or what have you couldn't be redirected to elsewhere in the world where demand is still there. So is the bottom going to fall out of the Chinese market? I, to my mind, you know, in terms of government and in terms of companies, they seem to work together and they are adamant to dominate this market. So, I mean, to the extent that China goes, if it does go any soft, I mean, the U.S. market is uh, very strong. We just heard that GM had their investor day. Um, Tesla is talking about the Cybertruck and so many new models. Ford and GM have big new models. LG Chem just announced a huge cathode plant in Tennessee. You know, the cathodes are coming. We talked about that last year. Like, like where are the cathodes? In order to have a localized supply in America, do you want to talk very briefly? You published this report on Piedmont. You know, there's been a lot of activity on your side in the last couple of weeks. Yes, I... You know, I did a report on Piedmont, Surgeon General's warning, they are a client. It's probably the most bullish I've been on, on Piedmont, although the price is up from, you know, from the past. I think if North American Lithium, through their JV partner, Siona, gets up and running, and they've just had another yeah. announcement suggesting they're even closer to production, I think, you know, the generation of free cash flow and earnings for Piedmont at some point, I guess, when they ship first commercial shipment goes out, uh, who knows, let's just call it around the middle of the year, that could be a huge catalyst for, uh, for Piedmont. You know, if prices are of spodumen are, are lower than where they are now, but on my price curve, on just that project alone, they could be generating more than half a million dollars of EBITDA on, a, on an enterprise value of less than a billion and then you've got Atlantic which we are very keen on and we think that that is going to get up and running in a DMS only so uh, Pilbara Minerals' BMX auction price flies in the face of the bearish reports because that was up 10% with an 8575 per ton SC6 CIF equivalent if you do a lithium chemical price equivalent on that spodumen price you're basically looking at $80,000 a ton VAT inclusive in China with zero margin for the converter. So is there a price collapse coming? I don't know how that's possible. You know, Piedmont with both North American lithium and Atlantic up and running could generate a billion dollars or very near a billion dollars in EBITDA just from spodumen 
by 2025. So on an EV to EBITDA multiple of less than one, that seems to my mind to be very cheap with very low technical risk. It's a DMS only project Atlantic and North American Lithium has the same operators before they put in new equipment to refine the process. So let's, let's see. I think that that's a major catalyst for them. You've seen the re-ratings in Sigma and Core. I know I'm seeing on Seeking Alpha and other people telling that Sigma is still cheap, right? Because it's only on three times EV to EBITDA in like 2025, and they think it should be six times. Here you're saying that Piedmont, which is going to be selling the same spodumene, is at one times. They're going to produce in a similar time frame first production as Sigma is. And and intersection of Tennessee with a DOE grant, and then you've got North Carolina, which they are still confident they can, you know, progress that project, and that is more optionality. So I think, put simply, if I remember correctly, how they fully domiciled in the US, if someone wanted to put a footprint into the US now that you have LG putting a, a cathode plant into Tennessee, and you've got Redwood Materials with pretty big ambitions as well on cathode, he's talking... 100,000 yeah. by 2025 and, and, and 500,000 by 2030. Now, you know, you've got someone to sell to uh, domestically and that, that changes the landscape. So all in all, I, I definitely one of the companies I'm most positive on. If you believe that, that North, North American lithium is progressing as Siona says it is and it can produce half decent material, then I think they're good things coming. It would make every sense in the world for someone looking for a North American footprint to do it on just on that front, anecdotally, just chatting to a number of people at the benchmark conference and at the one-to-one is the growing acknowledgement of Canada's role, I think, in, in becoming a, a major force, you know, in lithium over time, you know, Cam Henry with Green Tech, you've got, you know, lots of plays, all Kim, Frontier, Winsome, you know, I critical elements that. just got their permit. Yes, exactly. So that's also a huge, and you know, they've they've been, you know, they've been in discussions. So I expect to hear good news on the strategic front for them because they've had a lot of time to have lots of strategic discussions. You're right. And again, a clean, a clean material they have as do others, and you know, a great clean grid. So I do think there is a model for. Canadian spodumen to be either converted in Canada or the US like a Tennessee lithium project for Piedmont. I gave a presentation uh, in London on why the structural deficit is here to stay, gave a lot of these arguments. It was nice to see for the first time lithium taking, I mean, I had a prime speaking slot before lunch on the first day, which is a big change from being in the footnotes at the graveyard shift on the, you know, on the second day. So I presented, I noticed there were a lot more companies. I said hello to Cyprus and Alpha and Galan, much more lithium companies represented and far more interest and full diaries of the guys there. Although BMO presented on the commodities in general before me, and it was very encouraging to hear the elevated prices for a few years, and then a still good long-term price, minus 30. Theirs is around that as well. So that's a, that's a big change. I think a slightly deeper understanding of, of the issues faced. So, so that was good.
I'm speaking on a panel like Deutsche Bank's having their conference in New York. It's kind of consolidation in M&A. You were talking just about Piedmont, you know, sitting there at 1 billion market cap, one times forecasted EBITDA. If I think about this time last year, Rio Tinto paid whatever, $860 million for the challenged asset. Rincon, Organfeg bought Plus Petrol for $950 million. So both of those things were for sale. I was talking with why hasn't, you know, Livent been bought? Why isn't Alchem? If Rio Tinto and Ganfang are buying much riskier earlier stage assets in Argentina for nearly a billion dollars, like why wouldn't these things go for multiples of that? And I do think that you're you're gonna you're gonna see that. One interesting thing I listened to the Tesla call, you know, Albemarle SQM alive. And what were your thoughts? I mean, SQM had you know unbelievably fantastic results. It has to be said. In 2018, when Eduardo Bertrand and, and, you know, Corfo, they had the whole, you know, redid their concession. A lot of people, ourselves included, said that no NFW, that uh, that SQM would be able to be producing 150,000 or whatever, more than that before 2025. And here we are, the facts speak for themselves. They are producing 150,000 tons run rate up from like 50,000 in three years. That's pretty impressive. And they're getting, you know, amazing prices. So can they continue to grow? I was about to say, timing timing (laughs) is everything hard. They're getting amazing prices because you can sell battery and not battery grade for a great price. So uh, in in a market this short. So this is very similar. Same thing happened in 2016 and whatever it was when the market was short, you could sell non-battery grade for a great price. So hats off to SQM and Cracker. I mean, the government must be ecstatic because they'll be getting paid. They're the biggest taxpayer. They're the biggest taxpayer in the country now. That's a huge statement up from Cadelco. Like the, the, the volume of tons of copper that leave the country uh, is much, much higher. Yeah, I, look, I think once you get used to that revenue, you, you know, you won't want to give it up. I think they'll be pretty smart about it. And in fairness to Argentina, Argentina has some of the best policies toward lithium. No, no, I, I tell you, I've got to take my hat off to Argentina when you chat to the guys. I mean, in challenging circumstances, there are, of course, issues with capital flows and this and that and the next thing and equipment. But they are pro-lithium and, you know, testament guys are still buying and, and looking to develop projects. So, so very impressive. Yeah, the SQM results were good. The price is good. I think, again, as it stands, they like to be 20% of the market, and they're going to be roughly that this year. So the market's going to be a shade under 800,000. So 160, you know, here we come. These guys are going for it because they like the 20%. But equally, you know, if the market were to waver a little bit, I'm sure SQM would happily, you know, build up some inventory because they've, I think, run dry. In their commentary, they're always conservative about how far they'll forecast, but they said they don't see any issues going into 2023. So they're not seeing a problem. I think the other thing that's a bit of a, an issue with the reports is you've had contract pricing rolling off from bad deals coming into more spot-related or higher rolling forward. And, you know, you're seeing what contracts downstream are prepared to, you know, prices they're prepared to guarantee and so on. So that flies again in the face of 11,000, or I think sub 20,000 is a thing of the past. And I think anyone who's worth their salt can negotiate with downstream and get 20,000 or better as a floor price for however long you want. So I, I just, for battery grade. So I thought SQM was good. Livent took a hit and then it sort of bounced back. 
for 15 years or whatever the number is, they've been at 20,000 tons, they need to now move that forward. So another thing that was flagged by, by someone in the press, and it's something that I've said to you all along, is commercially, if you take ESG and all of those things out of the way and politics, China is by far commercially the best place to put a plant. Uh, and there's plenty of demand, and you've got Livent, SQM, and Albemarle all building in China. So that's a reality. That, and, um, and, and, and elsewhere, but I mean, we're, yes, it's regional. They're it's still putting, big, they're yeah. still putting in. They're still putting in, in big plants. So yeah, I think we'll have to see. Credit to SQM. They know their timelines, and I guess if they need to stay at 20%, they are pushing covalent, and they're pushing hard. They're looking to get that up and running, I think, by 2024, if I remember correctly, second half. Yeah, I, I don't remember the time frame, but they're definitely pushing hard on that from a, as a hard rock store, you know. Yeah, they've so been working on that for a long time. You've got Africa, you've got Brazil, et cetera, but Australia and Canada, I think, are the two big powerhouses that are going to come through. And SQM, now in hindsight, if you look at what they paid and what they can produce, it's a good deal. Oh, they paid a fantastic price. Even Tangshi paid it. Even Tangshi paid a good price for their SQM shares at sixty-five dollars. <laughs> they almost bankrupted them, but they're like so. And an IGO's deal, right? Into Tangshi, yeah. so Greenbushes. Yeah. So uh, no, in the this, end, this, and Albemarle into Wajina. You know, it all it all looked rosy. Now I think you know the number of players is still small, and I still think that. You know, sense will prevail. There's no point selling extra for a lower price when your net for net leaves you in the same place. So this isn't about survival now. This is about more finesse and nuance as to what you produce and what you sell. From an EV demand perspective, I flagged this before. In Europe, the CO2 emission policy is flat now between 2021 and 2025. I'm not saying there isn't demand, but people aren't OEMs aren't scrambling to sell in that market because they don't have to avoid fines anymore. They're good right. to go until 2025. I think around 2024 to 25, mm -hmm. you'll see that blip up. But I think longer term, we know most major markets are talking about ending the sale of new internal combustion engine vehicles between 2030 and 2035, which means it makes no sense from a customer perspective to be buying an internal combustion engine later in this decade. It really doesn't. And that also, why would you buy a secondhand one, which is going to cost a fortune in repairs and everything else when EVs are far more resilient and you've got long life batteries. So on the line, but I just don't see a long-term trail off in EV demand. And then you mentioned Cybertruck. I think lots of people want that thing. Uh, I don't know what price it'll come in at, but that's supposed to be in commercial production by next year. And then things like the semi, which has IRA benefits and the tax benefits, I think up to $40,000 a vehicle and others. You know, I think the batteries will find where they need to go to. And the US is now, I think from here on a tear, we've said for quite some time, it will be the highest growth market, I think globally coming up. The US is, is definitely going to be, you know, one to watch. And China won't want to fall behind and see that shift, especially if the U.S. does start with cathode and with battery, which means they could start exporting and then it's game on globally. It's clearly coming and it's great to watch. So I, I listened to the Mineral Resources uh, AGM 
was always colorful. He basically indicated that the Marvel joint venture is largely done, but it hasn't been finalized. But he expects that to be done and dusted by the end of December. I think they're pushing hard. Album is just slow. It's more just they've agreed everything. Just legal documentation takes uh, its toll. I believe he's he was coy on the spinoff. Okay, he was kind of like trying to, but he didn't say no. Right. My, my read of the body language there is that this is just too much of a valuation arbitrage that the U.S. listed for the lithium business when when mineral resources is going to be producing the equivalent of 120,000 tons of lithium hydroxide within five years. And the multiples affixed to that are in the double digits where they're giving, you know, mid single digit multiples in Australia. Wajina at face value, if he does the extra trends that he's talking about is green bushes. It's as yes. big as green bushes. Yeah, and he definitely. owns half of it. So what does Tanshi trade at? What is Tanshi's market cap? With a quarter of green bushes and a bit of SQM and, yeah. and domestic value. I, I, I think Al Mall is a better comp because it's hard to comp a Chinese valuation to, um, he'll do a US listing. But if you take Albemarle as a 30 billion market cap, if you assume two thirds of that uh, is lithium, that's 20 billion. And uh, they're producing less than 120,000 tons right now, which is where. Um, mineral resources wants to get to, you know, in five years, mineral resources only has like a 15 million Aussie market cap, right? So I can make an argument. I do make an argument that mineral resources, lithium business could be worth 20 billion US dollars um, in five years with a US listing. And they're currently trading at 12 billion for their entire business. So there's probably four times upside just embedded within their lithium business with some just back okay, of the, the envelope math. You know, you, you've, you've spotted that, you know, we liked Minerais a while ago and you've, you've doubled down on it now and it's near its 52 week high. So the market agrees. And, 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 well, the, but to your point and, and the point we just were talking about, SQM or West Farmer seemed to pay a high price for covalent. Tangshi looked to pay a high price for uh, SQM um, and Albemarle a high price for Wajina, even if you're buying at the top of the market, you know, this higher love um, is going to continue because prices are much stronger for much longer. And when you have a dip like you're having right now in the market, all of these retracements, they are, and it happened over the summer again, keep talking about it. Take advantage of these opportunities when the stocks dip to buy and you could buy very high quality companies and at the same time we were talking uh, earlier this year you met matt firmly i spoke to him this week as well we're going to have him back on the, the the channel before the end of the year to talk about lithium and a few other things but in our interview earlier this year on how high the lithium price could go you guys were talking about you know the, the most upside is at the drill bit and here you've seen just in the last month how an IPO of Winsome at 20 cents is now, you know, well over a dollar, you know, it's up five times based on visuals of, 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 of good spodumene. So we look forward to the assays there. The final thing I'll just say is that, um, you know, Tesla or Elon Musk bought Twitter, right? For 43 million bucks, a billion bucks. We thought, you know, he could have bought Albemarle, right? He could have bought Albemarle personally, right? If he does, it, just like he did Twitter. You know, if if Tesla doesn't want the ESG risk of being in the mining business, you know, maybe Twitter or Elon Musk himself can own software markets. Yeah, let's just 
that can be our parting <laughs> conversation. You know, it went from battery day, just put some salt and water into clay and you'll make lithium. Now he's looking at a hydroxide plant or what have you. And now there's, well, we might need to get into mining. So this right. is where we come around to. So here's the reality. We had the, oh, I'll just pick the clay up and do the mix and swirl it around, take it out and put it back story, you know, with the top. And, 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 and he has said mining repeatedly and Adam Jonas of Morgan Stanley asked him specifically on the conference call. So watch this space. It's going to be a very exciting uh, okay, I, I 2023. Think the reality is, Howard, if he does 50% this year and 50% next year, about 24 or 25, I'm telling you, they don't have what they need to, to keep that 50% compound going. The Tesla bull, like the, Tesla's at a two-year low. Almoral is at a two-year high. Like the dichotomy is insane. But the Tesla bulls are now, they, they keep talking about FSD, right? And AI, you know, and, and the robots, right? But like they're deflecting, you know, the bull case. Yeah, I'm bullish Tesla, I think, long-term. I've never owned it. I'm considering buying some now, but like lithium shares still just seem a better bet for me. But I do sense a bit of a shift, a continuing shift in the narrative away from like, oh, if they don't make their 50% EV sales targets, it'll be made up for by, you know, the FSD margins, which it might be. But I think the 50%, as far as the eye can see, EV growth you can only sell is, is at serious risk. You sell an EV, Howard. That's a fair point, too. Yeah, but people who have uh, cars, can't they get FSD later? Or no, you have to buy it at point of entry. I thought you had to do anyway. Yeah, you, you probably do. They, they need to. They need to go hand in hand. I'm sure uh, you know they'll make some maneuvers. They've been good up to now, but the reality was all of this dismissive of how easy it is to do this, that, and the next thing is coming home to roost. Hundred percent. You know, the unavoidable truth is if you want supply and you want it at the right price, then you're going to have to step beyond an offtake agreement. Because negotiating terms on an offtake hugely in your favor when there are 20 guys waiting to meet with the same person you are, you're just not in that position anymore. Tesla had a dominant position for years because they were the biggest player. Now suddenly there's a range of people you know, waiting to compete. I think it's unavoidable. M&A still to come. I know we know where we think that there's... Um, you know, there's there's real value. I think, as I said, Piedmont. I think in North America. But as soon as the Canadian story is validated, Critical Elements gets a partner, a couple of other projects. Nell gets up and running. All chemists progressing, or what have you. There's going to be some consolidation play in Canada. I've said it before. We'll say it again. Rio Tinto, we know, is talking to they. They hired investment banks. Show us your deals. Most obvious play for them would be Liven, and then they. I believe that Quebec and Ontario can very much look like it. It does in aluminum. Rio Tinto and Alcoa are all over aluminum. Uh, Rio's in titanium. Rio just signed. We talk about you know money from government. The SIF, the Strategic Innovation Fund, I think is partnering with Rio Tinto on titanium. I'm hopeful to see some stuff on lithium, you know, out of them. Let's just leave it at that. Thank you, as always, Rodney. This was a good update. I can't believe, I don't know what the hell happened to my voice, but um, I'm glad you did most of the talking on this video. To be continued, higher love, by the dip. <laughs>